hear me? There we go. I wasn't sure if it was me or not. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're headed. Uh, as Pastor Maldi mentioned, uh, there is a time at the end of the message to just to talk about what is something that stood out to you that you can take with you this week. And so we would encourage you to take notes. Uh, if you're a part of this church, we've been encouraging you to bring a, a notebook, something you can keep your notes running with so that you can learn more, grow more, remember more, right? Something that we all tend to practice is that note-taking to help us remember. So 1 Corinthians is one in a series of correspondences between Paul and the Corinthian church. Now, I say it that way because it's not actually the first letter. It's at least his second letter. And there's been this back and forth between Paul and the church that he's writing to. Paul began this church. You can read about that in Acts. I want to say Acts 13, but don't quote me. Somewhere in there. And you can read about him beginning this church and then handing off to some local elders. And then he keeps this relationship with them. And during this time he, that he has this ongoing relationship of kind of, we'll call it like pastoral coaching of them, they run into some things. And as he is walking them through that, this letter is one in a series back and forth uh, between Paul and the church in Corinth. And the issues, there's 10 of them in 1 Corinthians, in the book we call, or the letter we call 1 Corinthians. There's 10 issues that Paul is writing about and dealing with. And they all come under the banner of unity and purity. Talk about unifying the church and purifying the church. So unity, the church being one together, right? And purity, that the church would be living for Jesus in the way that Jesus calls us to live. And so as we look at that, I want to give you a, a tidbit. I've said this, I think, in the opening message, but Corinth, about 1,900, 2,000 years ago, uh, is often compared to Long Beach or San Francisco, especially, especially local teachers. But even uh, theologians or commentary writers will kind of compare it to that kind of culture. Another one would be like New York City. Uh, Long Beach is good for us. We're a suburb of Long Beach here in Cerritos, and so it makes sense to us. And Long Beach is anything but godly, right? It is not, you wouldn't say the number one influence in Long Beach is Jesus, right? Fair? There's a lot of other influences. There's a lot of lifestyles that are championed here in Long Beach, here in, the, in, the, in this, the greater Long Beach area, that are not in line with Scripture. And so imagine the gospel were to break out into Long Beach, and people who had never heard the gospel, never stepped foot in a church before, began to come to faith. And imagine the things that they bring with them from the culture that they were in, the culture that we all live in, and imagine how that kind of brings itself into the church and if you don't know any better, as many probably didn't, you don't know exactly what God is calling you to. And so this is kind of that setting. And so I'll give you a main idea for the day. So purity in Christ for kingdom work. So scripture calls the church to purity in Christ, or holiness is another way to say that. Holiness is not defined as perfection, but it is rather being set apart for kingdom work. We are called to holiness, or we are called to be people who are set apart for kingdom work. Now, I'm going to give you a, a dumb example, but I think it'll help us make sense. So this podium here, I think it's called, we'll call it a podium, right? Whatever this is, we'll call that holy, right? Now, now that would be true if we didn't let other folks, like we have the Boy Scouts come in and they'll do something here, and if they wanted to use it, they could use it. 
Holy would mean it is only used for like worship gatherings. That means we would not let the Boy Scouts or we would not let another organization use it. Does that make sense? It would be set apart only for the worship of God. Does that make sense? So imagine this was just set apart for that. We would call that holy to the Lord, right? So now we're talking about you, that you are to be set apart, that your life is to be given only over to the glorifying or the worship of God. Does that make sense? So we use holy or set apart today. That's what I mean. So imagine we didn't share this with others for that purpose so that it would remain holy to the Lord. All right. Uh, Chapter seven has things about marriage and physical intimacy, singleness, divorce, living as we were called, even speaks to the unmarried and the widowed. So there's going to be a kind of a variety of things all targeting one topic. All right, starting in verse 1, it says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so you'll notice about which you wrote, he's talking about what they wrote to him. Again, this is an ongoing correspondence, right? And you'll notice the quotations. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Just like last week, if you were here, the quotations mean he, Paul, the author, is quoting what they wrote to him. He's quoting their letter to him in this. So the last two weeks, we've talked about um, people that are immoral, uh, that are sexually immoral in different ways. Chapter 5 was a guy who take, kind of took it to the extremes that was called to be removed from the membership of the church. Last week, it was a broad category, one of three categories he was dealing with. And we said this, that, that physical intimacy is designed for one man, one woman, inside the covenant relationship of marriage, Right? forever, consensually, for a lifetime. Like, that's what it's made for. That's the design. And so anything outside of that is considered sin. Anything. So premarital, extramarital, right? Same gender, different gender. It doesn't matter. All of it is sin. So God says, this is what I made. This is good. This is how it's designed. And if you do anything other than this, outside of that is sin. And so couple chapters of how the church in Corinth is ignoring that or living as they would like to live, right? And in this case, some on the other side have swung the pendulum all the way over to complete abstinence as if that is glorifying to God. So God created marriage. God created our bodies. God created physical intimacy. God created all that, but he gave it a purpose and he gave it some boundaries. So inside of marriage, like we said, consensually, it beca- it's a good thing. It's a glorifying, it's a godly thing. Outside, it's a sinful thing. So on one side, you have people that are, that are breaking the rules and others that are saying there is no way for it to be God-honoring. Does that make sense? So they're kind of swung all the way over there. So you've got these kind of polar opposites within this church. Verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Listen, likewise the husband... That first part gets quoted a lot, and they missed the second part. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. All right. That gets oddly used one way more than another. We'll just throw that out there. All right, so... Here's what I want you to hear. When you hear authority, kind of throws your brain a little bit there. But here's what he's saying. Each marriage should enjoy this physical intimacy regularly, right? Obviously, there's going to be exceptions. Obviously, there's going to be 
health issues or whatever happens or somebody's traveling or something, right? But otherwise, the idea is that's good. That's what God created it for. And the idea of authority over a spouse's body is about the oneness of marriage, right? It's not about one person telling the other or asserting themselves over the other. And that's why it's mutual. The wife has authority over the husband, the husband authority over the wife, right? In that context, it's this mutual submission to one another. The way this is created, the way God created it, it's supposed to be a selfless act anyways, right? It should be about the other person. And that's really what's kind of being said here, that this is the way that glorifies God. Anything outside of that, including making rules about it that don't exist, anything else is sin. So he says, so, so do this, enjoy this, right? But in this context, verse five, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I'm going to guess that most of the people in the room here have never fasted from this particular thing. The idea here is that this temptation is common to all, right? And so don't deprive one another. So spend that time in marriage. Be together in, in, in marriage, right? Enjoy that. You, you can agree together to fast and pray together. But then he says, but then come back together again. Don't allow Satan or evil or temptation to work its way in, into and between the marriage. So what I want you to do here is if you're a note taker, and, and I hope you are, we're trying to create that habit in all of us. I want you to compare the weight scripture places on purity and how we view it today. I want you to compare, right? We've been saying this about the church. Look at the authority that, that the church, and that means the church, not like the, the pastors, the elders, but the church, the collective gathered assembly of the members. Look at the authority that is given to the church and compare that to how we treat or think about the church today. The same idea. I want you to think, we're all clear, I'm sure, on how we see physical intimacy today, or how we treat the violation of what God created it for, how we treat sexual sin. And then I want you to see the weight that Scripture places on purity in this area, and I want you to just compare. It's just, okay, do I treat things the same way God treats them, right? Do I see this issue the way God sees this issue? Do I give the weight and value of this issue the way God has taught about this issue? Verse 6, now as a concession, Paul says, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul is now living as a single man. It is assumed or believed that Paul was at one time married. And there's some good proof for that. We don't know what happened between here and there, right? So whatever happened here maybe lost a wife, a lot of death and childbirth in this era, a lot of things, right? We don't, we don't know. So that, that's, again, I don't know what happened. It could be that when he converted to Christianity, when he moved from being a persecutor of Christianity to being a follower of Jesus, it may be, maybe his wife left him. We don't, we don't know. But as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, he was likely married. But when we get to this point, the, the, the Paul that we get to read about and who talks to us about this issue is living single and celibate, right? And so he is living with no other, with no spouse, right? 
And so he says, now, as a concession, not a command, I, I wish that you were as I am, right? That you would, uh, that you were also single. Now, you have to qualify this conversation. God created marriage. We're going to even see a verse in a few minutes that calls marriage good, and the humanity being alone is not good, right? And so Paul is not asserting himself over what God has taught about marriage. Paul is saying, not as a command. I'm just, just me and you here. I'm talking to you, right? Here's what I wish for you, right? He's going to explain that in a minute. But he's just telling him, I wish you could have, but each gets his own gift, and he considers his singleness a gift, and that'll play out in just a minute. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passions. So he says, listen, if you're single, that's good, right? Now, I want you to hear this. That kind of breaks down in our brain. Paul is talking about living this temporary life that you and I are living for the sake of eternity, And that when we look at eternity, we look at the kingdom, what Christ began with the gospel that that has no end to it, that that goes on into eternity, that we will live forever with Christ eternally, that this life becomes a little blip on a screen, right? It's just this little dot on a timeline that goes on forever. And so when he he says this, he says, with the kingdom, is what he's saying, with that in mind, I wish that you could see how small some of these things are and how big the mission of the church is. And it's a gift to him that he is single because he can devote himself just 100% to the ministry that God has called him to. Now, he's not saying that's a command for all of you. I'm not saying it's a command for all of you. But I like that he places the distinction That the kingdom is big and great. And that this life, this this temporary, physical, broken life that we live is short. And he just paints that picture so that we can have right priorities. So that we don't spend all our time investing in this world, things that will die with us, but rather that we will invest in the life to come so that not only will we live forever, but many will join us because of our our focus on the gospel here locally, right? Now, remember, this isn't being written to individuals. It's being written to a church. It's being written and read in a context like this. And so he's talking about, and I'll just put it in modern-day terms, he's talking about our witness to the world we're in. And that if we would set down or set aside or, or lessen the value of temporary things, even marriage, even things like that, even you know, we all want a partner to spend our life with kind of thing, a a husband, a wife, or whatever. But he's saying, just remember, those are temporary. Those die too, right? And they're not easy. And eternity is a greater value. And if we would all live with that value system, no matter where that landed us in marriage, married, single, widowed, whatever, wherever that landed us, that we would see the bigger picture, right? We all know those I charts, the letters, right? There's a gigantic E on the top, right? Like the, the big E on the top of the I chart for us is the kingdom. That's the big thing, right? And then everything just falls in below that. Our problem is we invert the chart often, right? We put everything else as a value above God, above the church, above our witness in this community, which again is eternal. 
And that's the picture he's painting for us, that we would put our priorities in the right place. Verse 10 through 16, now Paul moves on to divorce. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, he pivots. I'm single and I wish you had this gift. I wish you had this singular focus that you could just devote yourselves to God, right? But he says, that's not my command to you. That's not a rule. I just wish you had this. He says, I value it. I I wish you had that. And then he flips back and he says, kind of a thus saith the Lord, right? You get that kind of, this is what God is calling us to, right? That, and I'm, this is neutral. This isn't just wives and husbands, but that spouses should not separate or divorce their spouses, right? And if they do, and I'll, I'll just kind of put in parentheses, if they do for a non-biblical reason, then Paul is saying, then they should remain single for the rest of their life, right? And so he says, you shouldn't divorce. Otherwise, you should remain single. Now, important points to know. Paul is writing to people who were not Christians when they got married. Paul is writing to people who did not take vows before God in a church, right, when they got married. And Paul is writing to people who came to faith apart from their spouses in many cases. And and we're going to see that today in the passage. So both of you outside the church, and then one of you comes to faith, right? It's in that context is what he's talking about. He gives a view of marriage, that marriage is for a lifetime. Now, we all say, till death do us part, right? I'm going to guess all of us that are married took some kind of vows. I can vouch for some of the weddings I did. I know you said, till death do you part. I know a few of you, right? I know that. But then we get to this place where I'm no longer happy, or this is no longer, or this or that, and then we call it quits pretty easy. And it's a greater issue in the church because the church is more likely to push you towards marriage, right? Rather than the world around us isn't going to necessarily promote marriage. And so you have this struggle within the church. And that's what Paul is writing about. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 5. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Let me just note the inner quotations. It's also been said by Jewish religious leadership this, whoever wants to divorce his wife, just let him give her a certificate. Here's where Jesus inserts himself. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces a wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Paul and Jesus are using the same language. Marriage is forever, right? And if you decide you're going to leave this marriage, unless someone violates this marriage, and notice again the weight on sexual sin. Just notice again how Scripture, Jesus and Paul, places that value, right? And then look at just how easily we tend to talk about it. And he says, if you, if you break this covenant of marriage and then remarry, right, you actually either commit adultery or cause adultery. And so consider that. Think about what he's saying here about marriage. He's using incredibly strong language. Verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, and he says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving, and I, you need to hear this verse, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Let's break this down. 
is probably the most important verse in this section, or at least the most important to understand. So the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. So you have a, a wife who comes to faith and a husband who is not a follower of Jesus. That's what he's talking about in that context, right? And he's encouraging the wife, stay with your husband. If your husband doesn't leave you over your conversion, stay with him. Stay with him. And then he says, because he is holy. Now, holy does not mean perfect. We already defined that. We define it as set apart for God, right? Set apart for, we use this language, it's kind of set apart for worship of God. What he's saying is there's a promise here that is unique and different, but it calls the unbelieving spouse holy. Then it flips it to the husband coming to faith and the wife does. And if she consents to say, if she consents to stay in the marriage, then she is called holy. It says, otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Now, here's what he's saying. That God somehow uniquely makes a promise over marriage, over family, right? We know that, that there is church and family, the metaphor there, that we use those two, two that, that one metaphor will teach about the other and both in Scripture, right? That they'll teach us about those relationships, that we are children of God, right? Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters with Jesus, scripture says, right? A family of God. That's what the church is called. The local church is called a family of God. We see the, the partnership between Christ and the local church as defined as a marriage with Christ as the husband and, and the church as the bride. Like we see this metaphor all throughout scripture. It's true in the Old Testament with God and Israel as well. And so this is meant to give us some meaning. And so God believes that both the spiritual family and the nuclear family are incredibly important, right? And that he places promises over them. Things that are, I would just say, above our understanding sometimes. And this is one of those. And so what he's saying here is that by you coming to faith, but your spouse has not yet come to faith, if they'll stay in that marriage, there's a promise that that spouse is holy, set apart, I would say it this way, and this is me reinterpreting it to you, that eventually that spouse will come to faith, right? He's saying that 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 spouse is set apart for, and the children are set apart for God. Now, the, the, the implication is then that you would live in such a way that represents Christ to your spouse and your children appropriately, that you would disciple your children in the faith, that you would given the opportunity, share your faith with your, with your spouse, husband or wife, and that you would live in such a way that Christ is glorified in your home. Wives, if that's you, that you would live in such a way where, where your spouse, your husband could see Jesus, or that your kids can see Jesus in you. And that if you will live in that way, that there's a promise made about the family. And that's why he says, listen, that's why we don't get divorced, Right? And there's a couple things. Remember, we talk about our church's witness, right? So our collective witness had a conversation recently with a similar situation and said, no, you, no. Biblically, you have no reason for a divorce. No, I hear you. You're completely unhappy. I get that, right? Let's strive for holiness. Inside of holiness, we will find our happiness, right? Inside of holiness, we'll find joy. Outside, living in sin, we'll never find true joy in Christ, right? That it, it comes to this point where you have to choose God over yourself, right? You have to choose God to stay in this marriage, though it's hard, though 
your person doesn't come to church or your kids don't come to church, but you're staying in it for the purpose of God. Now, if we, the church, encourage you to do anything other than that, we would ruin our witness to the world around us, right? Especially to the unbelieving spouse. You see, this is about our corporate collective witness. So your sin, my sin, it affects our witness to not only the people who live in our homes that may not know Jesus, but to the people that live in our community that don't know Jesus. And so he's calling the church to live in purity or in holiness or in a way that is sacrificially set apart to glorify God. And so he says, in singleness, that's what it looks like, right? In fact, I'd encourage some of you to stay single, right? That's what he says. In marriage, it's stay married. It's do not divorce. And if, it, if you get divorced, to stay single afterwards. I'm going to put a note on the screen for you. By the way, inside the new app, if you go to the Sunday, little Sunday button on the bottom, all the way down is today's notes if you need them. So here is a note. God's promises of marriage. If we're faithful to God's strong calling over our marriage and families, God promises that those in our family are a part of his plan, calling them holy. That may not mean today. That may not mean tomorrow. But if God says they are holy, God's got a plan. Fair enough? Verse 15. But if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Brother or sister means the believer, right? The believer in the church is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Right now, we all know that it's that God that does the saving, Right? We all know that it's, it's God alone who can change the human heart, if you will, the, the human spirit. But what he's talking about is our role in it. How do you know that by staying, you might cause them to come to faith by your witness in your marriage or to your kids? How do you not know? You'll save them. Paul used that language of your engagement and what God is doing as being incredibly important. So why do you think God, through Paul, makes such an issue of marital faithfulness and sexual purity? The answer is because it's all about our witness to the world. The unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving kids, the unbelieving neighbors, the unbelieving co-workers, whatever it is. But it's us choosing Jesus above ourself in this area collectively that gives us this witness. It makes us distinct from the world that we live in. Verse 17, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So verses 17 through 24 are living as you were when you were called to faith. Now, it's got some different implications in their day. We're just going to read through it and talk about it. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Meaning, were you Jewish? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Meaning, Gentile or non-Jewish. Let him not seek circum circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. If you're unfamiliar with that, the covenant symbol in Judaism is circumcision. If you were Jewish and you came to faith, you don't need to get rid of the symbol. If you're not Jewish and you come to faith, you don't need the symbol. You're not Jewish. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about, and that was a big struggle in the first century churches, whether or not you had to be a good Jew in order to be a good Christian. Okay? Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who, called, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. 
Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So here's the idea. Whatever condition you were in, you're good to stay there. You don't need to change that, right? And so if you're married, you don't need to change that. If you're single, you don't need to change that. If you, you know, had this, you know, religious identity prior, we're not worried about that. We're worried about you being in Christ. Being in Christ changes everything. That's what he's saying, right? He says, were you a slave or a bondservant? A bondservant isn't exactly the same thing as like we think of a slavery in our history. Not the same thing, but it's very similar, and it was this idea of not being free or being not necessarily owned, but indebted to someone else. And so they had authority over you. And so he's saying if you're, if you're a servant in that way, if you're a slave or a bondservant, you don't need to seek freedom from that. Now that got misused a couple hundred years ago in our country because they didn't read the next passage. But if you have your chance to be free, be free, he says, <laughs> right? But then he parallels this. He said this. He said, listen, if you're free, if you're not a servant, if you're not a slave, if you're free, you become a bondservant of Christ anyways. And if you come to faith and you're a servant, you're free in Jesus anyways, right? He says, listen, the eternal is greater than the temporal. It's consistent with the rest of this chapter, right? If you're a servant in this life, if you're, if you never get to that place where your boss is or, you know, whatever, the owner of the company, whatever it is, that's okay, he says this life is temporary. And again, in an era, a couple thousand years ago, where servanthood, again, kind of slavery, similar to slavery, but a little, a, a little bit different. He uses that example. It's an extreme example. And I love that he just qualifies that. If you have the ability to get free, get free. If you don't, don't worry about it. This life is short. In other letters that Paul writes, he even speaks to the servant and he tells them to be a servant as if they're serving under Jesus. So that the masters, the, the people of the house, would see Christ through the servants. He just calls them to lean in and glorify Jesus wherever they are. And then he flips it over and he says, listen, and masters, then you live like Jesus would. And you treat the people under you the way Jesus would treat them or the way Jesus treats you. Verse 23, I'm going to back up two verses. Paul says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Paul goes back to the gospel message for us. That we were created by God, loved by God, designed by God, and made to be holy or set apart, or that our lives were designed to give glory, worship to God. Sin enters in, and sin in its simplest at this point, especially as it relates to this chapter, is choosing what we want above what God wants right? Whether it be in singleness, whether it be in marriage, whether it be divorce, whether it be in servanthood, whatever it, be, whatever it is, right? It's saying this, that when you choose your way above God's way, you're choosing yourself instead of God. It's being unfaithful to God, right? And all of humanity has been sinful. And we, we are born under sin. Sin happened long before us. And then we join the, we join the, the humanity and then we add sin to sin. We've all sinned. And I would say this, especially if you're our guest today, we as a church understand how broken and sinful we are. We don't think we have it all together. We would say we're fixed on Jesus who has it all together and that our job is to strive towards him. We know we fall short even knowing better, right? And so sin is that choosing ourselves over choosing God. And he says, don't you know 
that Christ bought you with a price. And when we were separated from God by our sin, that Jesus came and he entered into human flesh, that God became human in Jesus. And that he lived a sinless life. He lived the life that you and I are called to live, but choose not to live. He did so in our place, and then he went and paid the ultimate price of giving his life for us in the most brutal fashion. Taking a, a beating where he was beat within, you know, inches of his life. And then being nailed to a cross and enduring when God pours out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. The, the physical things are one thing. But the separation from God and the wrath of God that Jesus had never experienced, Jesus being God, somehow got separated from God to take the penalty for us so that we would never have to be separated from God. And that that wrath of God poured out on Jesus is is Jesus paying the penalty for us. And so Paul says, don't you know you were bought with a price? And we talked about this last week. We talked about the Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote about cheap grace. Where because it comes to us free, we treat it like it's cheap. But it cost Christ everything. Right? It cost God his only son. It cost, it cost Jesus his, his very everything. Even the, the separation from God that he'd never known. And, and that's baffling to me as Jesus is God. And how can you be separate? But he had to pay that penalty. But he did so to buy you and I back. And so the idea here is that Jesus' sacrifice for you was so great that it is easier, if we understand that, it is easy for us to sacrifice in response to Jesus. If that means live single, we live single. If that means live in a marriage that isn't what we want it to be, it means that. If it means live here, live there, if it do this, do that, if it means don't do that, don't do whatever it means, whatever that sacrifice is, that we are called to do so in response to the sacrifice Jesus already made for us. And then we couldn't understand even the penalty paid by Jesus. But he did so to buy us back, to pay our debt. And it fits in this bondservant passage because a bondservant, unlike a slave, often when you, began, when you became so indebted that you were upside down and there was no way out, you could then go to the person you were indebted to and you could stay for up to seven years, you would be a slave or a servant to them to pay off your debt. You would go work to pay off your debt. And, and, and that's what bondservant was. And so again, we're not working to buy God's love. We're responding to the price paid for us. I don't earn my salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You can't cause God to love you anymore. But you can respond by giving of all of yourself to him. There's two verses. 1 Corinthians 6 from last week. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then a couple books ago, or uh, just a couple series ago, when we did Revelation, Revelation 5, they, the people around the throne, sang a song to Jesus, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or bought back people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Right? You were bought. You were were paid for. You were ransomed by Christ. So here's a note for you. Our response to Christ's sacrifice. The sacrifice Christ made for us 
causes a desire to give all of ourselves to him, resulting in sacrificing temporary things in this life for the sake of the kingdom. Giving up the temporary for the sake of the eternal. Jesus in Luke says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever seeks to save his life here will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will save it. In other words, you aim at the temporary, you get and you miss everything. You aim at the eternal, you get now and then. Right? And when we aim at what God has called us to, what we find in there, that God does more and better inside of that than we could have ever expected anyways. Because we're beginning to live the way we were created to be. And that God uses that and God fulfills that. Verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. He's saying, don't worry about your position in this life. Remain with God. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, betrothed is a parallel to our modern-day version of engagement, except it's stronger. There was already an exchange made, and, and there's a, a, there's, it's, in, it's before you're married, but it's a much bigger com, com, uh, commitment. Yeah. A lot of people get engaged and then break up, and that's okay. We have a different thing. This was more covenantal, and it was a first step towards marriage. Verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So he says, it is good, and that does not equal a command. Again, he's creating a value of what's more important, right? Verse 28, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. If you betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So those who marry will have worldly troubles. I would spare you that. Here's what he's saying. Marriage designed by God and good, right? But how I explain it, this is not necessarily... Paul's eloquence, but I would say it's two sinful, selfish people trying to live together forever. That's what it is, right? And then have kids who are little sinful, selfish people too, right? <laughs> and you're all living under one roof. And somebody gets hurt and somebody loses a job and somebody needs braces and whatever, and you just pile all that on, right? Marriage is not easy, but it's good, right? Lisa and I are about 25 years into marriage, wouldn't trade it for the world. Still, course it's a challenge. You're taking two selfish, sinful people and shoving them together and say, live together, right? And, and do life together. All the hurdles, all the things. So Paul's saying, listen, remain single, get married. You're not sinning either way. The value is, do you understand that the eternal is greater than the temporary? That this is bigger than this, so live that way. So Genesis, just to be clear, Genesis 2, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I know a lot of you guys. This is true. You're not good alone. Need help. Someone to get you up and just kind of get you off and like, hey, did you brush your teeth? I mean, you know, come on. Okay, so God created marriage. It's a good thing. We're not intended to live alone. Just like you can't live your faith apart from a church, you can't live a healthy life in Christ apart from a local church, from a, a commitment to a local body, same thing. A marriage is good, and that's what God made it for. So we'll put this up. Here's a note for you. Singleness versus marriage. Only some are called to be single for the sake of the gospel. 
Just like any other sacrifice, it is all about placing Jesus above our wants or desires. You see, we've, we've inverted that because we live to the culture and the world we live in. And so here, if you're not married by a certain age, women, there's a lot of pressure, right? And you get this thing like, okay, what's wrong with me? Or whatever. I think guys are, I think it's different for sure. But there's this idea of what you should be. You should be married, you should have kids, you should own a home, you should have a career, you should, all these things. All which will die when we die. Right? No, your kids won't die when you die. You know what I mean, right? Like, all goes away. But the eternal never goes away. So if you're married, live for the sake of the kingdom. If you have kids, disciple them for the sake of the kingdom, right? Value their faith above their academics, above their sports to pay for their academics, right? And that's where we get caught up in this thing. And, and he keeps placing our eyes up higher. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as, the, as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now clearly this is, re this is rhetoric to make a point. He's not saying mistreat your wives. Clearly, right? That would go, yes. Okay, so, right? This would go in opposition to the rest of Scripture. He is making a consistent point. Your priority needs to be Jesus, not your wife, not your kids. And when your priority is Jesus, you'll be a better husband. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better kid. You'll be a better worker. You'll be a better student. All that falls into place. So live for that, you get it all. Live for this, you miss everything. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Yes, you're allowed to shop if you have the money, right? Okay, so <laughs> verse 32 I want you to be free from anxieties. You can hear Paul's heart for this church. It's, he's a pastor who loves them. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. That's key. And secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. It's that last verse that restates what we've been saying. Not restraining you from getting married. He says it's to, it's to make sure your order is correct. That you have things in order. That Jesus is at the top of the org chart. That everything else flows after that. If you're married and have kids, it should go Jesus, your spouse, yes, your spouse before your kids, then your kids, then everything else, right? Everything else will fall in line. Your church, your work, your pastimes, your fun, whatever, right? And, and listen, kids never grow up and look at their parents and go, you guys just loved each other too much. But lots of them will tell you that my parents didn't love each other. That's why it's spouse before kids. This before that. Do you have it in order? With Jesus at the top, you'll figure everything else out. Verse 36, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly be toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it, is, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So again, not sinful to get married. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, not required, right? No rule. But having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep 
her as, as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries, his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. So it's a priorities thing. Now again, we hear all this and we immediately make it about us and Jesus alone. And our problem with that is we tend to excuse things a lot more when it's just me and Jesus. Now, when it's you and Jesus, it's easy to look at sin, right? When it's me and Jesus, it's easy to hide it. Remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking about our corporate witness to the world and that the purity and unity of the church is our witness. How our marriages or how our singleness, how it looks collectively is our witness to the world around us. And so he is leaning into that place of putting Christ first. So are we living as devoted to Christ above all else? Are we living in sin that discredits our witness, right? By the way, single people, if that is you, marriage is not the answer to that issue. Repentance is the answer to that issue. You with me, right? Marriage is a band-aid that will figure out you couldn't put Jesus first in your life beforehand and likely won't in marriage either. Just throwing that out there. Do our priorities match the calling of Christ on our lives? Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In other words, can't marry an unbeliever. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He says, listen, your, your marriage is until one of you dies, right? Not by murder, by death. I feel like in this room I should qualify that sometimes, all right? Okay. For a lifetime. If you're married, if you're separated, if you have no biblical grounds for divorce, he's saying, restore that relationship. That is your witness for Jesus. That is what's best for your family, for your kids. That's what's best. And then if you lose a wife, you can remain single. You can get married again. He just says, listen, I think it's easier to live for the sake of the kingdom by myself. I don't have to check in to see if I need to go over here. I just do it, right? He's not saying that's wrong. If you're married, check in. I highly advise it. 25 years of wisdom telling you, check in, right? So, but you can live with a singular focus of Jesus if that, right? That's all he's saying. Not making new rules. Here are the rules. Marriage is for a lifetime. There are very few exceptions. One is if you're in danger. One is if someone's been unfaithful. And the being unfaithful is not a, is not a command to, dis, to divorce. It's, an, it's still many marriages actually become stronger and figure it out even afterwards. Again, don't recommend that path. I'm just saying. He's saying sex is made for a married couple only. Only when they're married. Not outside of that. Not before that. Not after that. And that marriage is between one man and one woman. Inside of that, consensually, you have to live out physical intimacy forever. And then he's just saying, make sure Jesus is at the top of your priority list, not something else. And if something else is going to crowd Jesus out, then don't do it. Keep Jesus first. He says, that will give you your best life anyhow, and that will give you your best witness. And then he gives this reminder, listen, if you're married to someone outside the faith and they're willing to stay married, stay married. Because they're holy. 
And he makes a promise. He doesn't go any further than that. But he calls them set apart for God. And he calls your children, if you're willing to disciple them and raise them in the faith, as set apart to God. So how do we live in such a way that prioritizes what Jesus has done for us? Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, brothers, by the way, is the plural for brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Short form. Offer your entire life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Making yourself holy, set apart for Jesus. This is pleasing to God, and it's good for you. Don't be conformed to the world we live in. And it is near impossible not to let the world creep in. Right? So, you know, new iPhone come out, I gotta have one. Right? That's the world creeping in, right? And it just, the world shapes us. We see advertisements and lifestyles, we see things that we end up wanting. It conforms us to that. We see marriages and families and people owning homes and whatever it might be, and, and, and we want. Don't be conformed to the world. Live for Jesus as a sacrifice in response to the greater sacrifice that he already made for us. The only reason we're here and we have this opportunity is because of the great sacrifice Jesus made for us. Jesus moved first. All we do is respond. And so we live in the way that he lived for us. We live as a sacrifice. I'm going to shake up the categories. I'm going to give you some ideas for takeaways today. So for me, I just personally need to view every minute of every day as valuable to God. It has little to do with this message, but it reminds me of keeping Jesus as primary. It has little to do with my marriage. Or I'm not single and and. and our marriage, Lisa and I have a strong marriage. So this for me just reminded me that when I put Jesus first, some other things that come down here don't necessarily need to be here, right? I'm not going to get to heaven and be totally stoked that I, you know, binge watched that some season of something on Netflix. I'm never going to be pleased about that, right? I'm not even pleased about it when I'm done with it, right? Time. That's my thing for today. There you go. It has nothing to do with the message, but that's mine. I'm just being honest. Married people, your marriage is a reflection of your faith. How does your marriage represent Christ? How does it represent it to the spouse, to the kids, to the community, to the church? How does it represent Jesus? Married people, unmarried, your singleness represents Jesus to others and how you live it. How does your singleness represent Jesus to others? How are you living that out? In relationships, your relationship reflects Christ in the church. Keep it pure, right? Keep your relationships pure, whatever pure means in your setting. Parents and kids, do we teach our children that the value of the kingdom is above the values of this world? Marriage, education, income, security, all of that. If you were here, I think it was last, last Wednesday, we talked about idolatry, right? Putting our trust in something created rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, right? What is this? Substance and security? What's the word? Significance and security, right? Finding security in the job you will land someday, in the home you will own, in the thing. Finding security in anything other than Jesus is idolatry. Let that resonate for a minute. 
All right, let's take a couple minutes, take your notes, look at, turn, turn and talk to somebody around you. What does it take away for you today that you're going to try and apply to your life this week? Go. Go.